Well, I have the privilege to bring the Word of God to you again this morning. Uh, Some of you pointed out last week the the clock is not on the back wall. I know because the kids typically turn around and look at it every five to seven minutes. They're not looking back there because there's nothing back there. I just want you to know I got it. It's a little bit smaller. We'll try to end on time this morning. Fun at my own expense. Well, I was really struggling on what to preach on. Uh, Rest assured, it was going to be the Bible. I wasn't sure I was going to do a message on singleness. I was going to do another psalm. But the more I thought and prayed, I thought I would take us back to the Old Testament because I love preaching Old Testament narrative. So that's what we're going to do this morning. Well, there were two police officers, and they both had diamonds trapped in the soles of their boots. I had been a police officer in Los Angeles for about two years. I was working the graveyard shift, which, as all cops know, that is the the best shift, especially in Los Angeles. My partner and I were patrolling our area, and when we received a, a Code 3 call of a burglary in progress. And so as I flipped on my lights and sirens, I was driving my partner radioed, 9 a.m. 37, show us responding code 3, which simply means I get to drive the way I always wanted to. (laughs) Wheels churning, smoke coming out, and we are on our way. Why? Because we are LAPD's finest, and you don't mess with the boys in blue. Can you feel it? We turn off our siren. You don't want to let them know we're there. I mean, the whole idea is to catch him. And so we come up. My partner and I come out. I get my flashlight in my left hand, my 9 millimeter in my right, and we come up. He's got my back. I'm walking in. The whole front door, the glass is broken through. So I come in. I go right. He goes left, left, right, up, down, left, right, up, down. He's gone. Because he knew I was coming. I was sad. There's nothing more fun than chasing a bad guy out the back door. But he was gone. And in his haste to flee, he had spilled thousands upon thousands worth of dollars all over the right side of the store. Well, we completed the police report. We called the owner. The owner came, filled out everything. He calls to have someone come seal up the front door. Another fine job by the boys in blue and ladies in blue. Imagine my surprise as I'm walking back to my police car at 3 o'clock in the morning only to discover that something had gotten stuck in the soles of my shoes. So I sat down to thinking I was pulling a rock or a twig. Imagine my surprise to find that diamonds had become trapped in the soles of my boots. I was faced with a dilemma. No one had seen me take anything. The owner's insurance, I knew, we just talked about it, would cover the loss of everything. No one was going to get hurt. And how could we forget? My wife loves diamonds, (laughs) which, let's face it, are a little bit hard to afford on a police officer's salary. And at that moment, 
out of the darkness, I was struck with temptation. Without taking another step, I turned around and I literally walked the diamonds back into the store to a grateful jeweler. You know, it's often the case that temptation strikes us unexpectedly, isn't it? Wouldn't it be great if there was some kind of text messaging alert system? You will be tempted in five, four, three, two, one, boom! Okay, at least I was ready. Does that happen? No. It comes when we least expect it. And as Christians, we can be tempted to rationalize, to, to justify sin in that moment, to give in to sin. And often is the case, once that happens, what do we do? We hide it. We want to cover it up, either out of our shame or our guilt. Men, when you're checking your email and that pop-up pops up, or that ad on the side of your web browser invites you to click on a link which is going to take you to see something that you shouldn't be looking at, what do you do in that moment? When temptation strikes you, someone sends you a photo and you're like, delete or not. And ladies, when your friends get together and they start talking about that lady, and you know the one I'm talking about, whether she's at your workplace or whether she's in your home, or whether she's here at church or in your community, everyone knows that lady, and they start gossiping about her, they start slandering her, they start talking badly about her, and then they all pause and they look at you. What's expected? I have to go to the bathroom. What do they want for you to join in? What will you do in that moment? Will you join in? Will you gossip? See, the reality is, if we are not properly prepared to respond to temptation, we might make excuses for our sin. We might give in to that temptation, and then often we will try to hide it. Well, this morning, we will determine how to be prepared to respond properly to the sparkling allure of temptation. So, our text is Genesis chapter 26. Turn there with me, Genesis chapter 26, verses 1 to 11. And in Genesis 26, 1 to 11, we will find a man who was tempted to walk away with the diamonds trapped in the soles of his shoes. So this morning, we're going to examine two responses to temptation. We're going to take it directly from the story of Isaac here in Genesis 26. So let's look at this first response to temptation. The first response to temptation is you can walk the diamonds back. When you are tempted when you discover that you have diamonds trapped in the soles of your shoes, you walk them back. And in verses 1 to 6, we find this response. Follow along as I read verse 1, Genesis 26, verse 1. Now there was a famine in the land besides the previous famine that had occurred in the days of Abraham. So Isaac went to Gerar to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. So here we have the setting of our story and it opens up with famine. Now, we know what famine is, right? What causes famine? In fact, I, I remember someone telling me that, that there was drought here in Texas. Remember what happened to the lake? Those of you who lived on the lake, how high was your boat above the water? Uh, trees were dying. Insects were killing those great oaks because they weren't getting enough water. 
there was risk of fire. It affects everything. So for whatever reason, God withholds rain, and when that happens, what happens to the crops? They begin to die, and when the crops begin to die, what happens to the cattle and the goats and the chicken and the donkeys? I want to leave them out. What happens? They begin to die off, and when all of your food sources begin to die off, what happens to the people? They begin to die off. When famine strikes the land, you flee to find food. And that's exactly what is happening here in Genesis chapter 26. In fact, these verses are an almost exact parallel of the same thing that had happened to Isaac's father, Abraham, almost 90 years before. There was famine back in Genesis 12, verse 10. And also, Abraham went to Gerar in Genesis chapter 20. So we see almost a repeat. Isaac is living what happened to his father Abraham. But then in verse 2, notice what God commands with that backdrop. The Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Stay in the land of which I shall tell you. So apparently, why would Isaac be going to Egypt? Because what's in Egypt? Food. Along with everyone else, they are fleeing from the famine to go find food in Egypt. And on his way to Egypt, Isaac stops in Gerar where he has this encounter. Think about this. This isn't just some story passed down. The Word of God came to him. God appeared to him and spoke this truth to him. And really, against all human wisdom, what seems rational or logical, God commands him to stay. Stay. Don't go to Egypt. Don't go to find food. Now think about that. Why in the world would God command this? What would would possibly motivate God to do this? Does this seem rational to you? Does that sound logical? It's as if God's saying, hey, whatever your logical, rational plan is to provide for the safety of your wife and your kids and your animals, I want you to do the opposite. Let me give you some background to help answer the question, why would God command this? Look back in Genesis 12. Again, I taught a whole message on this, the Abrahamic covenant. I'm just going to mention it here. Genesis 12:1. Now the Lord said to Abram, go forth from your country, from your relatives, from your father's house to the land which I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing you shall be a blessing from the Word of God. Verse 3, And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. We call this the Abrahamic covenant. This is the promise that God made with Abraham. He said, If you do what I tell you to do, I will give you land, seed, and blessing. I will give you land, the promised land. I will make your family huge which is now what what we refer to as the nation of Israel. And I will not only bless you and your people, but through you all the Gentile nations will be blessed. And of course, we know how that was accomplished through the person and work of Christ. And so he makes this promise to Abraham. Well, if you look over at 17.21, Genesis 17.21, this same promise is passed from Abraham to his son Isaac. Genesis 17, 21, it says, But my covenant I will establish with Isaac 
whom Sarah will bear to you at this season next year. Isaac hasn't even been born yet. And God is already telling Abraham, this promise that I made with you is going to be passed down from generation to generation to Isaac, to Jacob, to the 12 tribes, and so on and so forth. So here in chapter 26, God is preparing to bless Isaac in spite of the circumstances of the famine. That's why he says, do not go, stay in the land. Do what is contrary to what the rest of the people are doing so that I can put my blessing and my name on display in and through you. And notice verses 3 and 5, 3 through 5, tell us what will happen if Isaac obeys God's command. God says, sojourn in this land. Sojourn simply has the idea of dwell, reside, drive in tent pegs, make this your home. Sojourn in this land and I will be with you and bless you, for to you and to your descendants I will give all these lands, and I will establish the oath which I swore to your father Abraham. I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven, and will give your descendants all these lands, and by your descendants all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because Abraham obeyed me and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. Notice right there you see the same three promises, land, seed, and blessing from Abraham to you, Isaac. Do it my way, buckle up, and watch. The story makes it very clear that if they were to enjoy the promised blessing and provision, then they must exercise faith in God in His promised word because everyone else is leaving. Everyone else is fleeing to find food. But you see, that's what true faith in God and His promises will produce a fearless lifestyle of obedience. That's where fearless obedience comes from. And this in turn results in the blessing of God. Now, did Isaac have a choice here? Absolutely. He could listen to the Lord. He, he could trust in God's Word. He could obey. Or he could give in to the temptation to go to Egypt and try to find food on his own. Well, verse 6 confirms his response. So simple. So Isaac lived in Gerar. How did Isaac respond? He obeyed. When faced with the fear of famine, Isaac trusted God and obeyed. And we know that God provided for Isaac because Genesis 35 tells us he lived to be 180 years old. In fact, look down at verse 12, right, even in our own chapter. It says, Now Isaac sowed in the land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold, and the Lord blessed him, and the man became rich and continued to grow richer until he became very wealthy. So even in this season, God began to bless Isaac immediately. Now Isaac could have rationalized why it was better to go to Egypt to look for food rather than to stay in Gerar and obey the Lord. He could have said something like this, God you clearly don't really understand my needs. This makes no sense. He could have said this, rightly so, God, everyone else is doing it. You ever had those words pop out of your mouth? Like a flock of butter butterflies? I don't know, do butterflies flock, apparently? That's what they would look like, though. Everyone else is doing it. Where did that come from? How about this one? God, this is the only way for us to survive. 
think that's probably what my response would have been. When God tells me to do something that seems to be the exact opposite of what is logical and rational, my mind has a hard time walking by faith because I want to walk by sight. He could have rationalized disobedience. He could have justified his sin. He could have doubted the continued promise of blessing passed down from his father Abraham, but he didn't. He trusted God. He trusted God's wisdom rather than his own. He obeyed, and God blessed. You see, when we are tempted to make excuses for our sin, such as lustfully taking another quick look on the internet or whatever is being popped up in front of us, or gossiping by speaking badly against others, we must be prepared in that moment to trust the Lord and obey. In fact, the words of Proverbs 3, 5 to 6 remind us of this, don't they? Proverbs 3, 5 to 6 says this, trust in the Lord with what? All your heart and do not lean on your own understanding in all your ways. Acknowledge Him and He will make your path, what? Straight. What does it mean to lean on something? Not like, oh, I'm really tired, I'm resting. To lean means, no, God, I am trusting in you. I, we could almost use the word rely. In this moment, it doesn't make sense. And so instead of relying on what seems logical or what I think is going to make me happy, instead, what am I going to do? I'm going to lean on you and your word. I'm going to trust and be dependent upon you trusting that God will make our path straight. You know, that doesn't simply mean guidance, as in He's going to make your path straight. He's going to show you how to go. It also means He's going to remove obstacles to make it straight. He's going to get you to the appointed goal. It may seem like we know best, but we must be prepared to trust God when we discover diamonds trapped in the soles of our boots when we are tempted to trust the lie of sin, and what does sin promise? Eat, look, drink, partake, do, and you will be what? Happy, satisfied, content. It promises lasting pleasure, and when we are faced with it, we must immediately fight it with the truth that sin ultimately brings pain and death, and that Christ alone is all satisfying. And unfortunately, I don't have to prove this point, do I? Because our world is filled with those who ignore God at the cost and the consequences of their own sin. We see the consequences of those enslaved to immorality from the internet, don't we? In our marriages, in our families, in our children. I mean, now... Our kids have it in their back pocket. And gossiping about others, well, hey, that's a respectable sin, isn't it? It's not as bad as other sins. And it feels good. And it's kind of logical, Chris. I'd much rather have them be talking bad about her than me. And these are just two examples, aren't they? What are you most tempted by? When temptation strikes you, what form does it most often take? Well, God's Word tells us how to respond to every temptation that you might face. Do you believe that? That if I took 10 minutes and you shouted out a temptation, that I would be able to open the Word of God and say, this is what God's Word says, how you should think, 
act, and speak. Do you believe that? Does the Bible talk about what we should do when faced with immorality? Absolutely. 1 Corinthians 6.18 says what? When we're faced with immorality, what should we do? Flee. You get up. You make tracks. You get out of there. What about gossiping? What does Ephesians 4.29 say? Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only that which will what? Edify. So that it will what? Give grace according to the need of the moment. And then what later on does verse 31 say? Put off slander. Put it off. Don't do it. The Word of God is clear. So we must fight the temptation to sin by trusting God to bless our obedience. Isaac trusted the Word of the Lord. He obeyed, and God took care of him. And we, like Isaac, must be prepared to respond to temptation by walking the diamond's back. Whatever that source of temptation is for you, trust God and obey. Well, there's a second response to temptation. The second response to temptation is you can walk the diamonds out. You can make the decision to say, no, these are mine. And in verses 7 to 11, we find this second response to temptation. Follow along as I read Genesis 26, starting in verse 7. When the men of the place asked about his wife, he said, she is my sister. For he was afraid to say my wife, thinking the men of the place might kill me on account of Rebekah, for she is beautiful. It came about when he had been there a long time that Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out through a window and saw, and behold, Isaac was caressing his wife, Rebecca. Dun, dun, dun. Then Abimelech called Isaac and said, Behold, certainly she, she is your wife. How then did you say she is my sister? And Isaac said to him, Because I said I might die on account of her. Abimelech said, What is this you have done to us? One of the people might easily have lain with your wife, and you would have brought guilt upon us. So Abimelech charged all the people, saying, He who touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. What an amazing story. Isaac lies to the men of Gerar. And of all people, the king is the one who God sets to discover it and confront him. What an amazing contrast between Isaac's first response to temptation and his second. And isn't it like that for you and me? One day, I'm victorious. And the next day, not, sometimes the next moment, the next hour, I fail. But notice, this time, it's not fear of famine that he faced. Well, what fear? The fear of man. He was afraid these Philistine men would kill him in order to take his beautiful wife, Rebecca. And he gave in to the temptation to lie about who Rebecca was, and then he tried to cover up his sin. How do we know that? Because what does verse 8 say? It came about when he had been there a long time. Do we know how long? No, but long means long. It doesn't mean short. He was there for a while, living a lie before his sin was uncovered. I just want to stop for a moment. If you ever, ever, ever find yourself 
justifying sin because you think you're going to get away with it. Remember Isaac. And remember the words of Numbers 32, 23, which say what? Be sure your sin will find you out. So how does God uncover Isaac's lie? Verse 8, one word, caressing. Now, since this is a PG audience, I'm going to give you a PG understanding of this Hebrew word. The Hebrew makes it very clear that this word is the kind of behavior that is not done between brothers and sisters. This is the kind of behavior that is done between a husband and a wife. So when the king looks out that window and sees Isaac caressing his wife, he knows she's your wife, not your sister. And Isaac is caught in his sin. And notice what motivates Isaac to lie. What, what motivates him to give in to this temptation to lie? Notice in verse 9, Abimelech calls Isaac, says, Behold, certainly she is your wife. How then did you say she's my sister? And Isaac said to him, What? Because I said... I might die on account of her. He was afraid of death. Now think back to what verses 3 and 5 just said. We don't know how much time passed between when God appeared to him in verse 3 and this happens in the latter part of verses 7 to 11. We don't know how much time. God had just promised that he would take care of Isaac. And remember, this was not some story orally passed down from Abraham. Hey, by the way, God visited me, and here's what he told me, so don't forget. No, God himself appeared to Isaac and told him this truth. But rather than placing his trust in the Lord, which would have resulted in what? Obedience. No, she is my wife. And if you try to touch her, God will smite you. That's what he should have said, maybe a little gentler. He, he was a stranger in their land, after all. But instead, he acted shamefully out of fear. Isaac deceived and disobeyed when he allowed his fear of man to override his trust in the Lord. And in the end, King Abimelech caught him in his lie, and God used a foreign king to uncover his sin. Do you think it was an accident that King Abimelech looked out that window at the precise time that the caressing was taking place? Was that an accident? Did he just happen to be glancing? Oh, what a beautiful day. <gasps> what do I see before my eyes? Who ordained King Abimelech to be in the right place at the right time to look the right direction to see what was seen? It was the Lord. If Isaac would have truly believed God's renewed promise to him, he would have trusted in God's protecting hand. Which reminds us of yet another important truth. Deception and disobedience always have painful consequences. Deception and disobedience always, did you hear me, church? Always have painful consequences. Always. You might get away with it for a time just like Isaac did. Nobody knows. It's your own pet little secret sin. It may feel good for a time. Doesn't sin feel good? In the moment, most of the time. Look, when I'm eating two or three sleeves of Oreo cookies by myself in a one-hour period of time, 
as I'm doing it, it feels great. God gave Oreo cookies as a blessing for Chris Steyer. And milk, it's like, oh, that, okay, it's perfect. Oreo, three-quarters dunk. I have it down to a science. My fingertips just brush the milk. And I'm eating these things, and I'm like, oh, this is good. What happens by hour two? Honey, if I ever look at another Oreo cookie, again, slap me. Something as simple as overeating has consequences. And don't even get me started about the heartburn. You kids are like, heartburn? What's that? Just wait till you get older. Sin has consequences. In the end, sin always brings death. After all, isn't that what's promised in Romans 6.23? For the wages of sin is death. Wages. When we do the work of sin, what we get from it is death, pain, trouble, suffering, conflict, heartburn. You see, there was another Los Angeles police officer who also found herself responding to a burglary call. And unlike me, it was way after the fact. It wasn't a Code 3 call. She was what we called a U-boat, which is basically a one-unit officer, one-officer one unit, sorry, I said that backwards, working by herself, and all she did was go around and take reports after the thing had happened. There's no danger. She just go taking reports. She goes to the store. She does the report. It was a jewelry store. She also had diamonds on the soles of her boots. But rather than walking the diamonds back, she chose to walk the diamonds out. I think the owner was back in the store getting some forms, getting some insurance information. What she didn't realize is the video cameras were still on. Think about it. Rule one of burglary. If you don't know how to do this, I'm going to teach you. Turn the cameras off. <laughs> Ding. Okay, thank you. Next time, I'm going to do that. You don't want any evidence. I guess this burglar was not too intelligent. Imagine the surprise of the detective. He's like, hey, hey, go get the lieutenant. In fact, just get them, bring the captain in here. They're in the room in the detective squad watching a video of this Los Angeles police officer walking around doing this. Are there cockroaches? What is she doing? Is she like pest control? That, she's going above and beyond the call of duty. Maximizing the number of trapped diamonds in the soles of her shoes. And after she was finished with the report, shook the owner's hand, she walked the diamonds right out. Days later, internal affairs comes with the detectives and the captain. Not only is she relieved of her badge and her gun, but eventually she went to prison. There are always painful consequences when we give in to the temptation to sin. 
The second response to temptation is to rationalize, to excuse, and then even to try to hide sin, which results in walking the diamonds out. Well, what is the proper response to temptation? It's this, walk the diamonds back when tempted. It's so simple. When you are tempted, when it comes out of the dark and you find whatever your temptation is, diamonds trapped in the soles of your shoes, you have to determine in that moment, God, I trust you and I obey you. I'm going to walk these suckers back in. I'm going to do what's right. And if we are to do this, then we must follow these three principles. I'm going to draw these from the story that I just read in Isaac's life. The first principle is this. Walk the diamonds back because you fear God rather than man. Why should we walk the diamonds back? Because we fear God rather than man. Again, in verse 9, Isaac was more afraid of what these men could do than all-powerful Yahweh. We fear God because we know not only what He's capable of doing to those who ignore Him in His Word. Think of a really big woodshed with a really big two-by-four. Can God discipline us? Oh, yeah. And it stings. But it's not just that. It's the fear of displeasing Him. The fear of yet again, Father, forgive me again. It's Chris. I did it again. I'm so sorry. Please forgive me. Knowing how displeased He is that I choose sin over Christ. I choose disobedience over the blessing of obedience because of the precious blood of Christ has set me free. And so we can't allow our fear of man and man's reaction to our obedience to dictate how we live. And at the root, what is at the root of fear of man? I mean, think about this. Well, according to Moses in Deuteronomy 1.32, it's a lack of trust in the Lord. That's what Moses says. He, he's reminding Israel why they experienced 40 years of, de of, of death wandering around in the desert. Remember? They went to the promised land. They sent in the spies. And what did the spies see? Nations bigger and greater than they were. And they came back afraid of those people. And Moses and the two good spies are saying, what? No, God is with us. In fact, even in Deuteronomy 1.30, Moses reminds them, God was the one who was fighting for you. He was first in line. All you had to do was follow him, and he was going to make your victory sure. Now, why do you think Moses is reminding them of this 40 years later? Because just like Israel, you and me need to remember God is with us. And if I do it His way, if I fear Him and trust Him and obey, I can rest assured He is going to provide. He's going to care. He's going to take care of me and bless. And so just like Isaac, Israel allowed what their human senses observed to override the truth of God and His personal promise to them. And we do the same thing. Don't ever forget Proverbs 29 25. Turn there with me. You can keep your finger in Genesis. Turn over to Proverbs 29, 25. It's one of my favorite Proverbs. It's a beautiful picture. Proverbs 29, 25 says this, The fear of man brings a snare, but he who trusts in the Lord will be exalted. Why does the fear of man bring a snare or a trap? Because my fear of man... 
either wanting to please man or being afraid of what man will do or not do, begins to control me. And what's the result? I commit evil or I refrain from doing what God tells me out of fear of how they're going to respond. We have different names for it. We call it peer pressure. Students here at school and someone is sinning or lying or cheating or they're cheating on a test and they look at you and say, hey, you want to do it too? And you know if you don't, that's where the nickname comes. And so your fear of them controls you to cheat. Not just, I mean, you already know the answer, but you do it just to stay in, in the inside. It happens to us as adults too. Why does the writer of the Proverbs call it a trap? What's the point of a trap? Do they hide the trap out in plain sight? No. You're walking along one minute, the next minute you fall into a bear pit. Hopefully the bear is not in there. What do they cover the pit with? Leaves, branches. It looks just the same. That's what it is. The fear of man entraps us. But notice the proverb says, but he who trusts in the Lord will be exalted. This Hebrew word exalted is a beautiful picture. It has the idea of someone taking something and, and, and setting it out of harm's way, lifting it up. In fact, we could almost translate it safety. He who trusts in the Lord will be safe. If you fear man, you're walking on the path, you will become entrapped and they will begin to control you, not God. But the Word of God promises that if you trust in the Lord, He will lift you up and keep you safe. Beautiful picture. Psalm 128, one, Psalm 128, verse 1, states it positively. It says, Blessed are all who fear the Lord, who walk in His ways. If you truly fear God, you're going to walk in His ways. God will bless those who fear and obey Him. No matter what you and I think we're going to accomplish through disobedience, we must determine today that when faced with temptation, I'm going to trust you, Lord. I'm going to obey regardless of the consequence. There's a second principle that will help us to be better prepared to respond to temptation. The second one is this. Walk the diamonds back by talking to yourself rather than listening to yourself. You walk the diamonds back by talking to yourself rather than listening to yourself. It's interesting, the translators add a little word here in verse 7. When the men of the place asked about his wife, he said, She is my sister, for he was afraid to say, My wife. And then you have that word thinking. Is it in italics? The translators put a word in italics. It's not actually in the original language. It's, they insert that word because the construction of the Hebrew lends itself that, that this is what he's doing. That this next phrase is what he was thinking in that moment. He's explaining how he was thinking. The Bible doesn't always tell us why people do what they do. Here it's very helpful. We know why he lied. He was afraid. He was thinking so back then, when he comes and he sees the people, and again, did this happen to his father? I mean, it's like this, this curse being passed down from Abraham. Did Abraham lie about his wife? Yes. I'm sure he heard that story. He walks in to these pagans, these pagan people 
on his way to find food, and he sees them. God appears to him. He stays. He's like, great, now I've got to live with these people. And what is he thinking? They're going to kill me. My wife is just that good looking. Think about the last time you talked yourself into sin. You gave into it. How did you justify it? Typically these words might not come out of our mouth, but in my mind I'm like, well, it doesn't really hurt anybody. It's not like I'm robbing a bank or having an affair. Or... I mean, it's not that bad. I mean, so-and-so, I remember what he did or she did. We start comparing ourselves to other people. Or how about this one? This is my favorite. It applies to Oreo cookies. Only one more. Just one more time. This will be my last. Do you find those thoughts going through your heart and mind when temptation strikes? Psalm 119, verse 11 states, Thy word I have treasured in my heart, so that, what church? What does it say? I might not sin against you. God, I love you so much that I am actively working on hiding God's word in my heart so that in the moment of temptation, when it strikes unexpectedly, unannounced, the Spirit of God will use the word of God to bring to mind what is true about God and what He calls me to do in that moment so that I might be prepared to respond in faith and obedience. So what, when our hearts are not set on God and His truth, what happens? Turn with me to Matthew 16, 21. Just really quickly, I want to illustrate it with this interaction between Christ and Peter. We know this story pretty well. Matthew 16, 21 to 23. We get a little context in verse 21. Matthew 16 says, from that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. So we know the story, right? Jesus is going with his disciples and what is his message to them? It's going to get ugly I'm going to die and be raised again on the third day. That's what he's telling them. So notice how Peter responds in verse 22. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord! Exclamation point. This shall never happen to you. I mean, you have to figure Peter probably thinks he's doing the right thing. He probably thinks, Christ, none of us want you to die. I hope that was in his heart. What else could have been in his heart? How often were the disciples fighting about when Christ brings his kingdom, who was going to be on his right and who was going to be on his left? How often did the disciples argue and fight about that? Is it possible that was going through Peter's mind? Wait a minute, Jesus. If, if you die, then your kingdom will not come to be. And if your kingdom doesn't come to be, what about us? What about me? And what does Jesus say? But he turned, Christ turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. Four of the most horrible words that could ever come out of the mouth of Christ. 
Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interest, but man's. What is Jesus saying? What is a stumbling block? Something that is preventing me from doing God's will. It is a temptation. You're not helping me accomplish God's purposes. You are hindering me, Peter. Why? Because where was, was Peter's eyes focused and his heart focused? On God's interest or his own? His own. What happens when our heart in that moment is focused on our own interests? We tend to do what we want. Because the Spirit of God and the Word of God are not actively bringing truth. And our hearts are set on ourselves and what we want. See, when we begin to listen to ourselves rationalize sin, we must instead allow the truth of God's Word to talk us into obedience. Sometimes I literally have to start quoting a verse and saying, God, I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this. Your Word says this. I don't want to do this. Will you help me to want to do it? Change my heart, God. I'm fighting. I'm struggling even in that moment. But we must learn to bring the truth of God's Word into every decision we make like a lens. I'm bringing the the truth of God's Word. Do I buy this car? Well, let me see what God's Word says. Do I date this person? I don't know. Let me see what the Word of God says. Are they a believer? Do they love Christ? Do they? I'm going to take this job. I'm going to have to, to miss this or do this. Well, let me see what the Word of God says through the lens. And we begin to use the Word of God throughout our little decisions and big ones. And what does that do? It helps us to focus on whose interests, not man's, but on his. And don't ever forget, when you and I are tempted to cover and conceal our transgressions, we must remember the prom- promise of Proverbs 28.13. Write that down. Proverbs 28.13, which says this, He who conceals his transgression will not prosper. Did you get that? He who conceals his transgressions will not prosper. And then it goes on. But he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. To confess is to admit, to say, God, you're right. That was sin. I did it. Please forgive me. What does it mean to forsake? God, I don't hate that as much as I should. Would you help me to hate it? And then I begin actively moving away from it, saying, I don't want to do that anymore. Get it out. My right hand is causing me to stumble. I'm going to cut it off and throw it from me. I'm forsaking that thing. I'm getting radical about amputating the sources of temptation in my life. I'm confessing my need for Christ. And what do we find from an incredibly gracious, loving God? Compassion. Not shame, not guilt. Not, you did it again? How many times? When are you going to learn? That's not what we receive from the Lord. We receive compassion and grace. And hopefully, that's what you and I give to each other. Amen? Wouldn't it be great to have a church that is 100% filled with this kind of a culture where we are comfortable sharing our struggles with each other? Because we want help, because we want encouragement, 
and we know that we're not going to receive shame or guilt, but grace and compassion. Tax season is right around the corner. I was thinking about this the other day. I'm getting ready to fill out the FAFSA October 1st for three kids in college. You know what the FAFSA is? The Financial Aid Federal, Financial Aid Federal something something. Anyway, what it means is it's the thing that you submit to apply for financial aid. So I started working on my taxes and getting that ready. Every tax year, what happens? You and I both know there's such a way to fill out your taxes that you can do it in a way, it's not quite a lie, but it's kind of like, you know, rounding up. You're not rounding up cents, you're maybe rounding up hundreds or were those meals really tax deductions or not? Were they? And at the end, what happens? I am getting a bigger tax return. I mean, after all, my kids need braces. Have you seen their teeth? This is not my kids. I'm saying as if this is the person. You're like, wow, Chris, that was very insensitive. <laughs> Hypothetical story. I just got passed for that promotion again. How am I going to afford this? That medical bill just come, came due. And what happens, those things start coming into your mind as I'm preparing my taxes to give to the, my accountant. And if I'm not careful, what will I allow? My fear of not being able to pay those things will drive me to give in to the temptation to fudge the numbers so that I get more money back on my tax return. And when I do that, the Word of God says I will not prosper. You have to remember and believe the promise of Psalm 8411. No good thing does God withhold from those who walk uprightly. No good thing does He withhold from those who walk uprightly. Do you believe that? If you believe it, live it. Amen? Well, there's a third principle, quickly. Walk the diamonds back by trusting that God's blessings are infinitely satisfying. Walk the diamonds back by trusting that God's blessings are infinitely satisfying. Again, the story against common human wisdom, Isaac stays in the land of Gerar when everyone else goes to Egypt to find food because he's trusting God. He's trusting God that when God says, if you do this, I will bless you, that God will do it. And he did. And when we are tempted to go after the passing pleasures of sin, we have to go back to the lasting promises of Scripture. You're comparing passing pleasures of sin, lasting promises of Scripture. Which has more weight in your economy? Turn with me to James 1.25. Just really quickly, there's so many verses we could go to. This is one of my favorites. James 1.25, this is in the, the context of don't just be a hearer of the word, God, word of God, but be a what? A doer. And James says, but the one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, what's that? The word of God. Not abiding by it, and abides by it, sorry. Not having become a forgetful hearer, but what? An effectual doer. That man, this man, will be blessed in what he does. 
We don't just hear the Word of God. We strive to do it effectually, consistently in my life. And what is the promise? God will bless you. That's the promise. And when we're tempted to give in to temptation, we have to remind ourselves that the passing pleasure that sin offers, and remember, there's always a hook, isn't there? There's always pain. It may feel good in a moment, but there's always pain. We have to remind ourselves that that cannot compare to the eternal blessings of the Lord. In fact, that's what Christ said in Luke eleven twenty eight. Luke eleven twenty eight. Jesus said this, Blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it. Blessed, happy, satisfied, content, filled. When you hear truth and observe it, you will be blessed. Thus saith the Lord. He says something very similar in John 13, 17. I think this is an appropriate time for me just to remind you of this simple truth that sometimes the blessings of God are not in the form that we most desire. It's not always money. It's not always possession. It's not always success or fame. It's not even granting our most cherished desires. You've probably heard me say this. When I first read Psalm 37.4, which said, if you delight in the Lord, He will give you the desires of your heart, immediately what popped into my head was a convertible sports car and a blonde. Welcome to my high school days. High school. Okay, God, I'm going to delight in you. Where's my car? And where's my girl? The blessings of God don't always take the form we want. Sometimes God's blessing is not what we want, but what we need. Do you get that? God knows what you need better than you do. Sometimes His blessing is not what you want, it's what you need. And sometimes what you need is a trial to make you more like Christ. Sometimes it's suffering. Sometimes it's joy. Sometimes it is a promotion. Anything that makes us more like Jesus is good for us. And sometimes it's peace and sometimes it's persecution. Sometimes God's blessing comes to us here on earth and sometimes it gets transferred right up to heaven, doesn't it? We'll never see it, this side of heaven, but it's there waiting for us as we store up our treasures not on earth but on heaven. And we know this, 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty eight says, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. As we toil here and work, it's not in vain no matter what it is, you can rest assured that it comes from a good and loving God who always knows exactly what you need when you need it. God's blessings are infinitely satisfying. Amen? Did you get that? God's blessings are infinitely satisfying. Well, just in conclusion, there are two primary responses to temptation. You can walk the diamonds back or you can walk the diamonds out. If you walk the diamonds back, it's because you've trusted God and you are obeying. If you walk the diamonds out, it's because you're trusting yourself and you are going to pay the consequences of your sin. Trust in God or obey. Trust in yourself and pay. Those are really the two options. There were two police officers who both had diamonds stuck in the soles of their boots. That second officer gave in to temptation 
walked the diamonds out right into prison. But when I, that first officer, walked the diamonds back, I, not only did I not go to jail, think about my ministry if I had gone to jail. Think about the path of my life if I had made that one decision to take what, what didn't belong to me. I didn't go to prison, but that's not all. The story doesn't end there. You see, my partner was so surprised by my integrity that later that night at dinner, he asked me about it. This was a guy I had been trying to, praying about, trying to figure out how to share the gospel with. He was a God-hater. And when he found out I was a Christian, I spent 12 hours a day with this guy where he just made fun of me, and I tried not to cry. Because cops don't cry. We're strong. Serve and protect. How am I going to share the light of the gospel with this guy? And guess what God did that night? He starts asking me about it. Because apparently the diamonds were on the side that I went, not on his side of the store. Got to share the gospel with him, and he listened without one joke. You cannot outguess the blessings of God. You can't. Because they're infinite. Why? Because God's goodness and love and grace is infinite. You cannot outguess the blessings of God. So when temptation comes and strikes you out of nowhere, remember your infinite loving and good God. And let's decide that if you or I ever find diamonds trapped in the soles of our shoes, we're not going to take one more step without turning around and obediently walking them back. For if we trust God that He will do what He has promised that He will do, then we can joyfully rest assured that obedience in the face of temptation to sin will result in God's blessing in our life. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it is so good to be reminded of this truth, to be reminded that You alone are good be reminded that when we are faced with temptation, and we will, we are, that if we are in Christ because of the precious blood of Christ, we can say, no, we have the choice because of what you have done in our life through Christ and his death and resurrection on our behalf. I pray that if there are some here who, even as I'm preaching this message and reminding them of the story of Isaac, they are caught even now, they are in the trap. Lord God, would you rescue them? Would you free them? Would you show them that there is an infinitely better way through the personal work of Jesus Christ? Give them hope that they can experience the joy and blessing of obedience and faith in you. And there may be others here that are, have been faced with temptation and they are saying, no, Lord God, would you reward them? Would you bless them? Would you give them strength in the days ahead to continue to put you first? that we might be a church sanctified because we have been bought with the precious blood of Christ different than the world that we live in. Because of you and for your glory we pray. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.